Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is always advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season six, episode seven, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 1971 psychological horror film, Let's Scare Jessica to Death. It was written by John Hancock and Lee Kelchum and directed by John Hancock. It stars Zora Lampert, Barton Heyman, Kevin O'Connor, Gretchen Corbett, and Marie-Claire Costello. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it first. Still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. Okay, so hired to write a horror film by producer Charles B. Moss Jr. in early 1970, Lee Kelchum's original screenplay, entitled It Drinks Hippie Blood, followed a group of hippies camping on a cove who are attacked by a creature that lives in the water. Kelchum described his screenplay as a deliberate satire. So John Hancock, who was the director, uh, he decided to direct the film as long as he was allowed to redraft the screenplay. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And so he proceeded to rework Kelchum's original script in both tone and thematic content. To quote Hancock in an interview with Michael Doyle for Rue Morgue magazine, quote, I made it eminently clear to the producers that I did not want to do a satire of a horror picture. I wanted to do a movie that was legitimately terrifying, unquote. So Hancock was given permission to rewrite the script only if he retained certain elements. The seance scene, as well as the mute character played by Gretchen Corbett, were kept at the request of Kelchum and the producers. Hancock wasn't too happy with this since he felt that scene, you know, with the seance and then the mute character made absolutely no sense and had no place in the film to begin with. (laughs) And, you know, uh, he was right. They don't really make sense. No. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So apparently Kelchum wasn't thrilled with the rewrite and asked that his name be changed to his father's name, Norman Jonas, in the credits. Yeah, so certain elements of the film were drawn from Hancock's own life, such as the apple orchard settings and the farmhouse, as he had grown up on an apple orchard, as well as the character Duncan's career as a bassist, as Hancock's father was apparently a professional double bass player. In writing the role of Jessica, Hancock sought to create an unreliable narrator. Jessica was partly influenced by the governess character in Henry James' novella The Turn of the Screw, as well as the character of Eleanor Vance in Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. Oh, cool. I can definitely see that for sure. Me too, which is probably why I really like this film. The theme of evil pervading the protagonist's mind was central. In another quote from the Rue Morgue interview, Hancock says, 
I was alarmed by the notion that you can't defeat or diffuse evil. It forever lives inside and all around us. So I worked that fear inside the story. Actress Zora Lambert was cast in the lead role of Jessica. She was approached by Hancock, who at the time was her boyfriend, while she was performing in a Broadway production of Mother Courage and Her Children. In an interview with David Connow for Fangoria, Zora recalls, quote, I accepted the part, trusting his judgment. I have a great fondness for John Hancock and enjoyed working with him very much. Marie-Claire Costello was cast opposite Lambert as the mysterious hippie woman, Emily. Both Lambert and Costello worked with famed acting coach at the time, Myra Rostova, in preparation for their respective roles. So, Let's Scare Jessica to Death was filmed over a period of only 26 days in the fall of 1970 in various towns in Connecticut. Because the film was shot in the fall months, the sequences that were shot in the lake required the actors to swim in very cold water. No, thank you. (laughs) The scene in which Costello's character emerges from the lake in a wedding dress was filmed in late November, and that was also a day that it snowed. Oh my god. Yeah, so uh, the film was actually filmed without an, without a distributor, so Let's Scare Jessica to Death was sold to Paramount Pictures in early 1971. Frank Yablans, then an executive at Paramount, devised the film's title as they felt Hancock's title, which was simply Jessica, was not commercially viable. Paramount gave the film a wide theatrical release in the United States, and it premiered in New York City on August 27, 1971, and opened in Los Angeles, California the following week on September 1, 1971. This is so strange to me. Fake plastic vampire fangs were given to patrons at some cinemas in promotion of the film. What? Like... That is so 1950s. Like, what a strange thing to do. I know. Yeah, so uh, that happened. And then a horse-drawn hearse and coffins were parked outside of Manhattan's Criterion Theater during the film's opening week. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was very um, William Castle. Very dramatic. Yeah. So during its opening week from August 27th to September 1st at the Criterion Theater, the film grossed a total of $47,651. So most of the film's critics at the time did not appreciate Let's Scare Jessica to Death upon its release. Many praised Zora Lambert's performance, but booed everyone else's. I think that's a little harsh. Uh, Everyone did a pretty good job for a 70s horror flick. Yeah. Some critics felt the film was too quote-unquote far out, but had some good moments of suspense. (laughs) Contemporary critical reviews of the film have been mixed as well. However, Let's Scare Jessica to Death is undoubtedly a chilling cult classic among general horror fans today, and it's been named one of the scariest films of all time by multiple horror publications. According to Steve Sensky of Trailers from Hell, Twilight Zone creator Rod Serling called the film, quote, one of the most frightening films he had ever seen in his life. While film scholar Kim Newman and author Stephen King have both named the film among their favorite horror films. According to Jay Schatzer, in their review of Let's Scare Jessica to Death, quote, 
This is one of those films that likes to take its time. Each setup pays off, though, and you're left with an icky feeling of doubt on whether what Jessica is seeing is real or truly all in her head. The way the director handles the material is masterful as he delicately crafts and scares in a classical manner that lacks the gore and jump scares and instead chooses to leave you with a haunting image that will truthfully stay with you long after the film ends, unquote. Mm, Yes. Yeah, so with that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. Jessica, her husband Duncan, and family friend Woody go to the countryside for some R&R after Jessica is released from an institution following a mental breakdown. They stay in an old farmhouse, and when they arrive, they discover that a young woman named Emily has been staying there, thinking that the house was abandoned. But Emily is not what she seems, and as the days go by, her presence becomes more ominous. Jessica becomes her main target, and the hauntingly beautiful Emily does everything she can to seduce her. Jessica knows that something isn't right, and she discovers that Emily bears a striking resemblance to a woman in an old photograph in the attic of the farmhouse, and she begins to spiral back down into the darkness of her mental illness, suspicious of everything going on around her. It is soon discovered that the off-putting townsfolk are the victims of Emily, whose real name is Abigail, and according to local legend, she had drowned in the pond at the farm the day before her wedding in 1880 and came back to life as a vampire, taking victims as she pleased. Jessica's mental health continues to worsen, and Duncan urges her to go back to her doctor in New York, causing a rift between the two of them. Clearly distraught, Jessica seeks answers for the way she is feeling and is cornered by Emily, who lures her for a swim in the pond and attempts to bite her neck. Jessica runs off, hitching a ride to town in order to escape the madness. Meanwhile, Duncan is seduced by Emily, and soon after, Woody is killed. Jessica tries to flee the small town, knowing that she is in danger, but receives no help from the local townspeople. Instead, she flees in a small rowboat, but is stopped when someone tries to sneak into the the boat from the water. Jessica stabs the stranger to death, but she discovers that it was actually Duncan, and she floats aimlessly away down the river, completely alone in her boat. And that's it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Abby, for that wonderful plot summary. Oh, you are welcome. Okay, so let's talk about the Bechdel test. Does it pass? Heck yes, it does. Yay! (laughs) Jessica and Emily have quite a few conversations that are not about men. Thank goodness. Who needs them? (laughs) Oh, no. What's really funny is that there easily could have been every, like, every conversation could have been them talking about either Woody or Duncan. Mm Mm-hmm. Easily. And it's not. It's very, very few conversations that they have are about them. Um. Most of the time, it's about, like, where will you go and what will you do and what's happened kind of thing. But that just, to me, shows that they are both characters that are interested in things other than Jessica's husband and then this guy, Woody. Oh, yeah. Screenwriters, learn from Let's Scare Jessica to Death of all all movies. (laughs) Get it together. (laughs) All right. So let's talk about Nancy's dream team test. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? You know, I almost wanted to say yes because of Jessica, Emily, and the young girl characters compared to just Duncan and Woody, but the village is full of old men. And so we got to say no. It's not 50%. Did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? No. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? 
No. Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? That's a good question. Uh, We'll talk more about that in a second. Technically, no, there isn't. But, you know, with vampires, we can't help but talk about queer theory. I know, it's true. All right, so let's start off this episode with uh, women and mental health in the early 1970s, because this film is this is all about that, really. Yes. So according to the website Brought to Life, uh, and this is a website provided by the Science Museum of London, there's an article that says, quote, many women's lives in the 1960s and 70s were still organized around Victorian stereotypes of the loving mother and dutiful housewife. Eesh. Yeah. So influential feminist writers of the time criticized psychiatry. They argued that it was one of the main ways society controlled women. Women who did not behave properly risked ending up in psychiatric care. Many feminist writers also criticized psychoanalysis, the then dominant approach in psychiatry. They argued Freud's focus on sexual fantasies and the fact that most of his patients were women rehashed old ideas. It was similar to hysteria being labeled a quote-unquote woman's problem that should be cured by finding a man. It's kind of like where we are at now. Like, we have all this understanding of um like gay and transgender communities or as much as we possibly can like identify with these people but there's still so much like ignorance left and there's still so much work to do so when you think of the 60s in terms of like oh it was like the start of like women's rights and you have birth control and all this stuff like those women were still dealing with the leftover sentiments from, like, the Victorian era or, like, the 30s and 40s where women were supposed to be, like, proper. So Right, and, and you forget that there's a reason why the fe- feminism started. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. You know, it's not just because people just decided. It was because there were still things that were extremely wrong with our society. Yes, yeah, for sure. Um, what's really funny is that... S- like hysteria actually wasn't very common in the 60s and 70s and I actually found another article called Women and Hysteria and in the History of Mental Illness uh, that says that like annual admissions for hysteria to psychiatric hospitals in England and Wales at least I couldn't find anything about the states uh, from 1949 to 1978 show that they are diminished by nearly two-thirds and they actually showed that this marked a decline really Really, the decline started in 1971, which is when this film came out, which is kind of funny. Yeah. So hysteria was, in fact, like a major form of neurotic illness in Western societies during the 19th century, and it really remained up until World War II. Hysteria is now part of like depressive and anxiety neurosis rather than like its own thing. Uh, However, the concept of hysterical neurosis wasn't deleted until 1980, when the DSM-3 was published. So it might have declined starting in 1971, but you still could be diagnosed with hysteria until 1980. Wow. So let's take a look at the character of Jessica with all of this in mind. This film was made and released in 1971, okay? And I think it's very telling that Duncan and Jessica don't have any children. Uh, Zora Lambert, who plays Jessica, was 34 at the time of this film, and that, I mean, I can only assume that means that the character of Jessica is 34. 
mm-hmm. and she's married, yes, but she has no children. And I don't even know if she had a job before they moved to Connecticut. So maybe her not behaving womanly, you know, is why Duncan has moved her to the country. He wants her to be well, but he also seems to want her to be away from civilization, which we're going to talk more about later. He's given up like this amazing career and maybe he's like not that beat up about it, but Jessica sure seems guilty about this big change and There's even a scene when Jessica's in the attic and she finds like a white virginal gown and sparkly shawl. She uses that and she like kind of plays dress up with it. But it's almost like she doesn't want to make the transition to mother wife. Like she's playing around like a little girl. She's not acting like an older woman, in my opinion, at least. I mean, right. We all play dress up once in a while, but just her actions seem very innocent and she doesn't seem very serious, if yeah, I guess she, is what I mean. Well, like, this whole thing is so ironic to me because Duncan ends up being seduced by the type of woman that he's trying to keep Jessica away from by, like, bringing her out to the country. And, like, this film is so great because it's it pretty much just centers around the disaster that can happen when you suppress your own desires and how isolating that can be for humans. So, like, you have obviously Jessica's viewpoint of what's happening, but, like, there's also, like, everyone else involved in Jessica's life. And it's just odd to see a film like this in this time period because I feel like that wasn't really being talked about too much yet. Like, yeah, I was genuinely surprised by, like, the thematic elements in this movie yeah and you know i also want to bring up uh the scene where jessica goes to pick an apple from the orchard and duncan says don't touch it it's poisonous which he's right in the logic of the film it's covered in pesticides but if we look at this metaphorically he's denying jessica the forbidden fruit (laughs) yeah he's a godlike husband who rules everything she does sexually and Mm. A few scenes after that, Emily is seen tossing an apple in her hand. And the apple, this whole thing about the apple, makes a great transition to our next topic. And yes, Jessica was hearing voices, but maybe she was going through something else. Maybe she's trying to explore her sexuality and her husband and society is denying her that. Mm. So let's talk about Carmilla, the lesbian theory, and the flowers of evil in the 1970s. (laughs) Um, I want to mention the flowers of evil first because, okay, so about halfway through the film, Jessica and Duncan visit an antique shop and Jessica becomes fascinated by a very small, very colorful lamp. And the shop owner says that it's an art piece called Malfiori, which is Italian for flowers of evil. And Jessica is surprised by the name, thinking to herself, how could something so beautiful be so evil? Now, what's really interesting to me is that there is a poem called Flowers of Evil or Fleur de Mal by French poet Charles Baudelaire. And the poem was published in 1857 and was considered very important to the symbolist and modern poetry movement. Okay. So what's the poem about? Well, it deals with themes surrounding eroticism, specifically lesbians. Whoa. Oh, my God. Yes. And in fact, one of the working titles for the poem was The Lesbians. Oh, my God. Yeah. And this, to me, is one of the reasons 
why this proves the theory that this film is about sexual desires for women and that maybe Jessica's quote unquote illness is a mix of hysteria, but also lesbianism. And she has these feelings and desires for women, we assume, but she is told that they are evil. And how can they be so evil? She doesn't understand. That's because it's not evil. I would be shocked. I mean, I truly would be shocked if John Hancock did not, or Calchum, if they did not, like, put that in there uh, on purpose. Yeah. It definitely seems like they would. I'd be truly shocked. So to continue on with this, let's talk about Carmilla and lesbians in general. So... We very briefly touched on Carmilla in our episode about Dracula's daughter, and the link is in the show notes for anyone who wants to listen to that episode, but I wanted to talk a bit more about Carmilla here. So Carmilla is an 1872 gothic novella by Irish author Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu, and one of the early works of vampire fiction, and it actually predates Bram Stoker's Dracula by 26 years. And the story is narrated by a young woman who is preyed upon by a female vampire named Carmilla, who is later revealed to be the Countess of Karstein, and the character is a prototypical example of the lesbian vampire, expressing romantic desires towards the protagonist and is depicted as a trait of antagonism in line with the contemporary views of homosexuality. Now, Many horror fans would argue that just because there is a female vampire in this film, it doesn't mean that she is a lesbian slash Carmilla figure. However, there is no doubt that Emily slash Abigail is queer in some way. And here's my very weak, (laughs) at least I feel like it is, my very weak argument that Emily or Abigail is a lesbian. And she preys on men too, but here's the thing, she's not obsessed with them like she is with Jessica. Mm. She gets into Jessica's head and speaks to her and whispers to her very sensually, and by making Jessica feel like Duncan doesn't love her, it gives her the chance to kind of swoop in. And the men of the town and Duncan and Woody are really just pawns in her desire to convert Jessica. Even Ken Anderson says, quote, standing in contrast to gothic traditionalism, of the theme of the disbelieved woman, which is Jessica, is the gender-based disruption introduced by the character of Emily. In horror films, a female vampire is depicted in ways not dissimilar to that of the femme fatale in film noir. Her power lies in her awareness of men's vulnerability to her sexual allure. She has both agency and control over her fate because men are such easy prey, unquote. (laughs) Nice. So men, to Emily, are easy to manipulate and move around a chessboard to reach her queen, Jessica. Wow. So that's my, that's what I think. Um, I would agree with that. Okay, good. That's nice. Yeah. (laughs) So I was like, I wonder, I was like, I'm surprised that there aren't more, I mean, there's been a lot of comparisons to this being a Carmilla type film. But a lot of people also in articles were like, I can kind of see why there's a Carmilla figure because it's a woman vampire, but that doesn't necessarily mean lesbianism. And I was like, I beg to differ. I mean, it's kind of hard not to think of that, though, because she's seen so many times, like, I don't know, the way that they look at each other. Like, I know you can definitely tell there's like something there, like there's a spark there. And then like 
when she goes swimming with Jessica and she's like putting lotion on her back and she's like caressing her face and stuff. I'm like, she's into it. Well, and I mean, I think the very first, I think when I first saw this film, like when I, when she says, oh, do you play? Emily asks Jessica if she plays the guitar and uh, just goes, oh, no, I, I can't even pick up a tune. And then she does this, like, eye roll. That's yeah. like a flirty eye roll. And I was yes. like, what is happening here? Ooh. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. So I'd also like to quote William A. Tringali from his essay entitled, Not Just Dead, But Gay, Queerness <laughs> and the Vampire. The best. Tringali brings up a lot of interesting points that I'd like to share. And one of them is, quote, now the horror of the vampire is sexual. Worse, it is sexual in all the wrong ways. It is beautiful, charming, and even occasionally funny and likable, but definitely abnormal. This allows the vampire to become a conduit for cultural anxieties concerning queerness within society. As a creature that straddles the binaries of life and death, drawing attraction and repulsion, the vampire queers both gender and sexuality. Stories about vampires can reflect and dramatize cultural anxieties surrounding queerness across both time periods and mediums. Queerness, by its broadest definition, is anything non-normative. This definition, however, has been often reworked and simplified to only include issues of sexuality. Okay, so Tringali goes on to discuss women and sexuality in the 1970s and 80s and says, quote, one anxiety about gender and sexuality in the 70s and 80s was the fear of lesbian feminism. Lesbian feminism began as a counter movement reacting to what some women saw as shortcomings in the feminist movement of the 60s and 70s. Lesbians were unable to find support among the women's rights movement. Betty Friedman, for example, famously, or I guess infamously, referred to lesbians as a lavender menace and gay rights. Yes. And gay rights groups often ignored lesbians' call for women's equality as they were not focused on women's equality. The latent homophobia in the women's rights movement and the sexism in the gay rights movement forced lesbians to form their own groups, such as the radical lesbians, and write their own theories on gendered and sexual oppression, unquote. Oh, wow. Yeah. So in the 1972 essay, Lesbians in Revolt, feminist theorist and lesbian Charlotte Bunch argues that lesbianism as a movement frees women from patriarchal oppression. Bunch argues that heterosexual women are forced to, quote, define themselves through men, unquote, and forced to, quote, compete against each other for men and the privilege that comes through men and their social standing, unquote. <laughs> wow, that sounds familiar, right? Mm-hmm. Just a year before this essay was released, the character of Jessica feels like she must compete with Emily for the role of wife to Duncan. Yeah. And she feels like she is nothing compared to Emily, who is pale, blue-eyed, and has unique red hair, and who also sings and plays guitar. Not only that, but Jessica defines herself through Duncan, like we mentioned earlier. She has nothing that defines her. She talks about Duncan's life at the Philharmonic, and how she was almost late to one of his performances, and how he bought her this house, and how he started this apple orchard. Everything is through him. Honestly, the only thing that seems to be her own thing 
is the gravestone rubbings, and even then Duncan rushes her through it. He doesn't seem to like her obsession with the strange and unusual. He seems to just want to squash it. Yeah. 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 And Sarah Century writes, quote, As many of us now know, one indicator of an abusive relationship is a partner who fosters dependence from the other person and isolates them, effectively cutting them off from any possibility of a support network. Typically, Jessica blames herself for what Duncan has sacrificed for her and believes it is her own inability to cope that has caused his sexual interest in the young, supposedly free Emily. Her relationship with her father is alluded to have been incredibly taxing on her psyche, and she clearly blames herself for his death, unquote. Man, this... (sighs) I hate to be that guy and, like, compare it to, like, movies that... I've recently seen, but it makes me think of Midsummer, like the mm. codependency that's happening in this movie. And I'm just like, it's so insidious that like, and it's so subtle, but it's so frightening. It's so scary because when you think of typical abusive situations, you think of like physical or like verbal abuse, but you don't think about like stuff like being isolated or like under the guise of like, oh, let me take care of you. Let, let's let go away for a while. Like, oh, it's just so creepy. I can see that if it was her idea, it'd be different. But yes. it's obviously his idea. Yeah. And she's just going along with it and is so excited. But it's like, but does he have your best interests like in, his, in mind when he's doing it? Right. Yeah. So obviously to this day, those within the LGBT plus community have a lot of struggles. But in 1971, we can't help but feel a sense of hope for Jessica after that ending. She might have broken free from Emily, but is that truly what she wants or is it what she thinks she needs? She doesn't seem happy at the end, sitting in her boat all alone. Hopefully all of the Jessicas in the world at the time would see that things were beginning to get a little better. So let's transition to LGBT plus and mental health in the 1970s. So on December 15th, 1973, two years after the film was released, the American Psychiatric Association, APA, the largest psychiatric organization in the world, made history by issuing a resolution stating that homosexuality was not a mental illness or sickness. Yeah, I found a really good article by Rebecca J. Rosen for The Atlantic, and she said, Those years that followed, the decade of the 1970s, represent a a remarkable period of transformation for gays and lesbians, particularly those living in America's coastal cities. At its core, that transformation was about visibility, and during those years, there was that first gay television movie, a sexy on-screen kiss between two men in Sunday Bloody Sunday, and the release of Cabaret, which has been hailed as the first movie that really celebrated homosexuality. There were gains in politics, too. Edward Koch, then serving in Congress, became one of the first elected officials to publicly lobby on behalf of the homosexuals of Greenwich Village, Kaiser writes. So yeah, there was like a lot going on during this time period that was really progressive and, you know, giving these people a lot of visibility. This is like pretty evident in this film as well because there's a clear attraction that Emily has to Jessica between the intimate moments of them staring at each other from across the dinner table and the way that I mentioned earlier that Emily like 
caresses Jessica's face, it's obvious that the film is saying something about what it means to be a closeted gay person, but also an openly gay person. So it's like two ends of the spectrum here. And it also shows like the effect that it had on your mental health because Jessica basically unravels because she's unable to express her sexuality and she crumbles under the weight of her marriage to an overbearing man. Like, she doesn't end up destroying Emily per se. She destroys her life and her marriage in order to survive. Yeah, she kills her husband. Emily is, slash Abigail, I guess, is left alive just standing on the shore Mm -hmm. Kind of looking at her in a very forlorn kind of way. Yeah. She's a little upset that she's gotten away from her. And, you know, she can swim. She could have, I mean, she's in the water all the time. She (laughs) could have gone after her and she doesn't. It's sad. It's very sad. Surprisingly, it's a sad ending. And because there's a part of us, I think, that wants it to end with Jessica finally being free. And I wonder how this film would have done if it changed to Jessica after killing her husband, accepting Emily and like going with her. Yeah. Jessica never really truly gets what she wants. She's alone in the end. Yeah. And it reminds me of um, like it's very Sylvia Plath-esque. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yeah. I agree. Yeah. It, watching this film, I, like, I got the same emotional response as when I read, like, The Bell Jar and, like, some of her poetry and stuff. I was like, oh, this is so sad. <laughs> yes, it's sad, but you kind of relate to it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's very identifiable, for sure. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So let's talk about hippie culture and vampires in the 1970s. According to movie reviewer by the name of Tor, in their review of Let's Scare Jessica to Death, they say, quote, The free love and social reform movements of the 60s not only isolated those who wanted no part of the progressive ideologies, it also provided ample excuses for people to separate themselves from pasts that they no longer wanted to be associated with. The hippies in this film are not victims of a group of deviants who didn't get the message so much as they are a group of young people ignoring the significance of their own demons. This is expressed through the character's fears and responses to Jessica's psychological history. Escape is their only answer, but they're chasing a false sunrise that quickly gives way to the irrepressible darkness of Jessica's mental illness, unquote. I mean, there was also a lot of rhetoric in this time period about, you know, hippies being like, leeches of society and i mean you see an example of this in the very beginning of the movie when it's discovered that emily is basically squatting in the farmhouse like she also talks about you know not caring about her degree and not having any desire to go back to school and that's something that a lot of like freewheeling people did in the 60s and 70s i mean obviously she had no interest in it because she was a vampire but it's like if you want to make that comparison, like, you know. No, but this is all before we find out that she's a vampire and she's very relatable, I feel like, to the times. Well, yeah. And I mean, what better metaphor than a vampire that takes advantage of her victims, you know, before like drinking their blood and ultimately, I guess, killing them. Like she's literally sucking the life out of these like quote unquote normal people 
So Emily is also really free with her sexuality as well. And like she she gives when she wants to, but also it kind of made me think of like when the free love movement started happening, so did all of these STDs. When it's discovered that Emily is a vampire, there's this big reveal that like all of the townspeople are her victims and they they've all got the same mark. And it's reminiscent of the way that like this movement left a lot of people without answers for like their sexually transmitted diseases and HIV and that kind of thing. Like that was a really scary time because people were getting sick and they couldn't pinpoint where it was coming from or like who was infected. So I think that Jessica's fears also echo that sentiment a little bit. Like she's very, um, when Emily like approaches her and like tries to be like intimate with her she's she just recoils like she's so frightened and I think that like that was going through a lot of people's minds at the time there's just so much going on that we didn't know about yet really so yeah a lot of people felt lost and I think that that really works well with this last quote about hippie culture that I found for this film a reviewer of the film by the name of the arrow (laughs) said in their review that let's scare Jessica to death was a product of its time a time when flower power was on its way out and them hippies found themselves lost in the mother effing wind (laughs) and yeah I think that Jessica herself feels lost in the wind by the end. And we like, and if we want to go back to her sexually and historically, like what was happening with women and lesbians at the time, women were still being controlled by their husbands and lesbians weren't being accepted by male gay rights activists and straight, you know, female feminists. And there's definitely a sense of not belonging anywhere or to anyone. And It can be both freeing, but also incredibly scary. Yeah. Yeah. And this actually sort of empathizes um, Emily a bit because she is all alone. Like Woody asks her, like, don't you get lonely? And she's like, oh, sure. Yeah, I do. And I mean, she has all of these people that she's she's changed, you know, that she's infected, I guess, with her vampirism. But she hasn't found the one. And I think Jessica's the one and Jessica leaves her. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. So let's get into our final thought. Um, There is an overwhelming amount of images of death in this film. I want to talk about it because I think it's pretty neat. I mean, the title, first of all, Let's Scare Jessica to Death. The word death is in the title. That's an obvious one. But Woody drives a hearse and carries Jessica, Duncan, and their belongings in it to their new home. This, to me, is a representation of their marriage and even their friendship with Woody, their idea of a happy home with close friends. It's all a dream now because it died back when Jessica was instituted and they are carrying what is left of it to its grave, aka the house, where it's going to lay to rest forever. And I think it's also fitting that Jessica sits in the back where the coffin would be. Yeah. To Duncan, the old Jessica's gone. He lost her when she had her supposed mental break. So, you know, she's just dead in the back of the car. It's also funny because at the beginning of the film, we assume that it is a real hearse with a real body in the back being dropped off at a cemetery. But really, Jessica has a fascination with gravestone rubbing and she wants to stop there. So this is just another image of death in the film. In that scene, 
she says, forget the doctors. I'm okay now. We'll start over. And immediately after she says that, the camera settles on a gravestone that says, here lieth. Well, here lieth who? What? (laughs) And I believe that it means here lieth Jessica's old life, the one that she's trying to start over and she can't because it's gone and buried. Yeah. And immediately after that scene in the cemetery, Jessica, Duncan, and Woody drive the hearse onto a boat that takes them across the water. However, the scene starts with a barrier like coming down towards the camera And I couldn't help but think of a guillotine. Ooh, yes. And we're only five minutes into the film at this point. (laughs) Um, Okay, so let's go back to the boat, or in this case, the ferry. So this reminded me of Karen from Greek Greek mythology. He is the ferryman of Hades who carries the souls of the newly deceased across the river Styx and Acreon. And these rivers divided the world of the living from the world of the dead. And the trio take the ferry steered by an old man to their new home, aka hell. Ah. And listen, you even hear dogs bark when they arrive on land. Cerebus, maybe? Oh... Shoot. Yeah. And Emily, who is somewhat of an angel of death, sings a song called Stay Forever. And the lyrics are, stay forever, my love, my love, we're together, leave the world you know about. Stay in hell or stay dead here with me, she seems to sing to them all, especially to Jessica. And I'm sure you didn't cry because you're a sane demon. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I sob every time I hear this song in this film. I don't know what it is. It's Mary Claire Costello's voice in the song. The lyrics are so sweet and simple that I sob every time I watch this film. <laughs> I get it. I definitely get it. It's okay if you don't. You're just making me feel better. But No, I do. It's emotional. <laughs> but um, yeah, and I kind of love that because... Again, like Emily is lonely and going back to her wanting Jessica to stay, she is telling her leave the world you know about uh, and stay forever with me kind of thing and leave the heterosexual world that you know, basically. Yes! So then there's also Emily who insists on a seance after she learns of Jessica's dead father. So that's also a very death sort of related thing and Jessica is like thrilled like at first she's like oh I don't know if I can do it but then once she starts talking to the spirits that she hopes are there she starts to cry and you know she seems very connected to the dead and um it's pretty powerful yeah well I mean Jessica has kind of an obsession with death and like not wanting people to be forgotten hence like the headstone scratchings but like she ends up being the one who gets tossed aside. Like, she's forgotten and forsaken by her husband because she can't live up to his expectations as a wife, but when she tries to become a new person after being institutionalized, she just keeps stumbling over her fears until they lead to her downfall. You know, and her husband tries to quiet her down in bed one night as she begins to fall apart, but she's literally like, who cares? Like, yes, he says, like, they'll hear you. Like, he cares more about those people than her feelings. Right. Well, and I think this was, like, the saddest part for me because she feels so alone that she doesn't care who can hear her emotional outbursts because she's just, like, everything is gone all around me. And 
in a way it's freeing, but she's still isolated. Yes, just like the end of the film. Yeah, and I mean, she ends up becoming the thing that she fears the most after killing her husband. Like, she is almost... She's basically death itself. Yes. So the cool thing about this is that women are always expected to play the role of a life giver, but she's the opposite. And, you know, this film really breaks the mold of a typical 70s era female character because of that, I think. And it's not just Jessica either. I mean, Emily or Abigail is also like a death bringer. Wow. You know, I didn't think of that because by the end, they're both they're both angels of death. Yeah. And they still don't end up together. Yeah. Aww. Wow, this film is so freaking good. I know. It's very, it's a lot to think about. It is, because I imagine people watch it and they're like, wow, that was kind of weird and dreamlike. I really feel like this film has a lot to say, and I'm really glad that we talked about it. Yeah. Also, if you're gonna, like, if you haven't seen the film, watch it once and then, like, wait a day and watch it again. Because it's better the second time you watch it, for sure. It's weird. It's very weird. It's, it feels very... Um... Yes, when I first watched it, I kept screaming at the TV, what am I watching? Because yeah. I didn't know what it was. I no, I knew that it was a... I had heard it was a really good underrated horror film, but I had no idea like what the horror was. And that title is so strange in itself that... It's like, what could this be? Is it all in her head? Like, is it vampires? Is it ghosts? Is it all three? And it kind of is all three. Mm-hmm. And um, it really, if you really just let go and just enjoy all the twists and turns and the weird, and like you said, like the weirdness of it, you can really enjoy this film. All right. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy. Don't forget to check out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs and sweatshirts and t-shirts and more. Head on over to www.goodmorningnancy.com merch and click the shirt icon and that'll take you right to our shop. And if you're not already a patron, go to patreon.com goodmorningnancy for some sweet extra content in your coffee. We review horror trailers, TV shows, and new movies over there sometimes, so become a patron, won't you? You can also help support the show by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. You can also help us out by telling a friend and spreading the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye. Bye.